0: Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management.
1: I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast.
0: I'm George Baxter, and I guess I'm a hedge fund manager.
1: <laughs> I'm Dan Krawczyk, an academic researcher, Uh, We have a forthcoming book entitled Understanding Behavioral Biases, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, which is all about some of these biases that can undermine your performance and the uh, basis for those within our brains and how it impacts our lives. We'll be tackling biases. Sometimes we do more academic topics and other times we do more real-world topics. I've been thinking about panhandling lately. I wasn't planning on taking that up myself. But it's a lead-in to some interesting value-based research and and practice out in society. So we've probably all had the experience of uh, someone asking for spare change, or can you give me some money? There are a variety of ways to do it. In the Dallas area, we seem to see a lot of people making cardboard signs and kind of parking themselves at a left-hand turn lane, which always seems kind of dangerous to me and very difficult to get that to work since the cars start moving really fast and you might be caught in them. We lived in California for a period of time and saw extremely colorful panhandling methods. Most of the time, if you've been in a city with a lot of panhandling, you start to develop kind of a schema or a bias to refuse quickly or else you would spend all your time kind of giving away your money. So we fall into this pattern
0: of a bias toward kind of an outright refusal in a default sort of way. It's interesting. You know, Dallas is a pretty horrible place to be a panhandler. It's very hot. But California is wonderful. I think like if I wanted to take that up full time, California would be my destination. From what I understand, there's a significantly larger populace of panhandlers hand in California?
1: There really are. Having grown up in suburban New York state, I hadn't really experienced panhandling much. And then when I moved out west, so I'll share a colorful examples. One of the times I was really inspired to give money was uh, we were in London and there was this panhandler who was, was just clearly on the street. And he was, uh, he had picked up a traffic cone, sort of one of those orange pylons, and he was tending to play it as an instrument. <laughs> so like a megaphone just going doot 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 doo. and I just had to admire it. It was almost like uh he'd elevated panhandling to some kind of street performance art and it was kind of humorous and so that kind of inspired
0: me. Yeah, yeah. It's not something we make light of in terms of the tragedy associated with people that are homeless. But it does trigger a lot of interesting psychological nuances that I think, actually have some relationship to human behavior that we can extrapolate into the markets. But it is a situation where, you know, you forget what you're going to say, and you just start rambling incoherently, which is what I'm doing now.
1: (laughs) Well, that's right. This gets into sort of an interesting topic of, of compliance with a request, right? So, we always make this calculation based on the context. It really drives whether we're going to give money. I mean, we definitely have uh, many opportunities to give charitably to people. And in some cases, panhandling is an appropriate uh, situation. But it happens kind of so often that we will sometimes discount the panhandlers simply based on the behavior. Now, there's some interesting research in this regard. Uh, it's known as the peak effect, which refers to peaking one's curiosity. And this was done in. Um, uh, Santa Cruz, California. It's a good beach town for panhandling, lots of college students, lots, kind of a offbeat town. And uh, the researchers were at UC Santa Cruz, and uh, this is work from Michael Santos back in the 90s. And they had basically some research assistants who were college students dressed as typical college students out on the wharf, Santa Cruz, uh, what would happen is they would go up to people and basically ask for kind of a typical request of, could you spare a quarter? Could you spare some change? Or they would ask, can you spare 17 cents or 37 cents? You know, so it was kind of comparing an unusual request that was very specific versus the very generic sort of, can you spare any money? And they got much more compliance of the request if it was the unusual amount, like thirty-seven cents. So the thought there was that you're piquing someone's curiosity, like you kind of break their default refusal script. They're biased to just discount the barrage of panhandling that goes on, and, and it might just be enough to make them think twice and consider engaging with the request.
0: It's interesting. It's a salience type effect, really. I mean, it's it's not a dramatic one, but anything that is different, anything that is dramatic, anything that captures your attention has a tendency to be more effective. It's interesting, there's a book that I read called Moonwalking with Einstein, who uh, basically it's about a reporter that covered these memory competitions that people would engage in. They talked about mind palaces and how You could uh, basically remember long sequences of numbers or, you know, pi was an example, by basically associating whatever it is you were trying to remember with some sort of a very distinct, even perverse image. And the more distinct and strange it was, the more likely it would be that you could retain it.
1: That's right. So that ties back into our memory episode that we did a few podcasts back. That is great advice. So if you can think of some novel, unusual, sort of bizarre imagery, it's very potent for memory. And I guess it really becomes a signal-to-noise problem within our brains, that to rise above the noise, it has to look distinctive and different. And so these kind of requests where It just sort of breaks the uh, standard script, become very potent, and people are more likely to comply with with the request. It ties back into some classic work from Ellen Langer on compliance. Ellen Langer is a social psychologist. Back in the 70s, they had done a really clever sort of uh, study that it wasn't about money, but it was about people's time. So there was, in the days of copy machines, you would sometimes have a backlog of people that wanted to... Do a copy job, and that can get really sort of annoying, right? Because somebody's possibly doing a large amount of copies, and so uh, they had experimenter uh, confederates kind of come in and simply make a request with a justification. And as long as you justified the request, people would usually let you cut in line to make the copies. And the request could be something pretty reasonable, like "I'm in a big rush, and this is super important. Do you mind if I just do these five copies?" Almost everyone would comply with that request. Even though it means your time is devalued and you're going to let someone cut, but it could even be a very flimsy justification. And I think one of the funniest was, "Can I cut in line here? I need to make these copies." And <laughs> that alone was enough. And it just—I guess—it felt like some act of desperation where you you're going to let someone uh, sort of go ahead with their quest because it seems like someone in need that you're
0: helping them. I guess the lesson here, what we're trying to capture, is that. Uh, when you think about it in terms of the investing universe, it is a situation where some very distinctive feature is alerting you to a particular opportunity or something to be concerned about. Whereas if it's just generic, then it's not a problem. And there's an interesting interplay between this somewhat salient issue and base rate neglect, right? So there's an experiment where they looked at insurance, for instance, and they said, uh, okay, how much would somebody pay for airplane insurance or for basically, you know, insurance that would cover you for an accident associated with an airplane? And uh, people would provide a number. And then there's another one where they said, well, how much, you, you know, would you provide for terrorist-related activities that could occur on an airplane? And then people would provide a higher number. So the idea was is basically it was within the subset of the original, but because it had more of a descriptive nature to it, people could go and visualize.
1: Right, and this gets into charitable giving once again. It's kind of where do we where do we see the need, and to be successful, I think in raising funds, you, you sort of have to humanize a lot of these causes, right? Make it very vivid in someone's mind. Give them a a way to emotionally attach to that phenomenon, and this is linked to some of our hormones within the brain. So we have, we've talked about oxytocin before. People had thought of oxytocin as a trust-related facilitator. So when your brain gets sort of infused with oxytocin, your oxytocin levels will rise. When you look at uh, pictures of cute babies and uh, when you sort of are feeling a kindred spirit with others, sort of we have this, this elevation of our oxytocin levels. And we had done research where you can actually elevate oxytocin with um, a nasal spray, kind of like spraying Afrin for a cold, only it'll basically go, it just raises your oxytocin levels a little bit. And we were wondering, would that affect people's charitable actions? And this is work with Adam Teed, uh, who was interested in this exact topic, like how we uh, decide to engage with, say, building homes for the homeless what we tended to find is that the willingness to participate in that activity was different than the value of the activity so people would rate the activity as valuable but they wouldn't always say they would participate and it seemed as if our oxytocin levels in some way govern maybe that willingness to actually go out and, and do something or give you know time energy or money toward a cause we've talked about a lot of these societal phenomena really, we should bring it back to how we invest and how we think about value. And the potency of events seems related here. So when there's something distinctive, it seems urgent, it's fear-inducing, we're likely to probably have our actions affected, but it'll only last for a short time. And this is something related to how our emotional circuitry works. We're kind of geared toward these uh, fight-or-flight quick reaction kind of uh, responses, and so this relates back to your, your comments about base rate neglect. We will tend to avoid thinking about the base rates because they're not very engaging. They're not specific. They're not interesting, and so it doesn't make logical sense that we ignore the base rates. Things like airline dangers certainly relate here. We have statistics on this. We could look them up, but what's more compelling to people is some recent events, whether it's plane crashes or acts of terrorism, those will tend to unduly influence our actions.
0: Yes, there's no question about it. There is a certain amount of fatigue that is experienced when we do see something that is surprising or salient. So if you think about, for instance, the issues associated with the BP disaster that occurred, you know, where they'd show the films consistently of the birds that were covered in oil and the oil that was being pumped into the ocean. British Petroleum came under a lot of pressure, the stock did, for quite a while. But eventually, people were able to get past it. You know, when it's on the television every day and you're constantly seeing incremental news, then that affects people's behavior. They become concerned. But eventually, it passes. And In that case, it created an opportunity to buy the stock because it was something that was the decision-making of the people that were in the market was being affected in part by the salience of the issue, which eventually faded. The question you have to ask is whether the fear associated with the issue is going to be sufficient to actually have an operational effect. On the business itself and in most cases there is an effect in the BP case they did end up having to pay significant reparations for the damage that was done and it had an effect on their business but it didn't destroy it and it was taken to an extreme and that's typically what happens you have something and you get this self-reinforcing loop between what the narrative is and what's happening with the stock price and this the stock price moves in a manner that's consistent with the narrative, then people will look at the movement of the stock price as justification for the narrative.
1: Right. And that that particular case, it seemed unimaginable that BP would ever recover because you'd always hear the news, oh, "It's still leaking, and it can't cap it," and it, it just uh, it seemed like a downward spiral. But you know, nowadays, I mean, this is only two years later, maybe, and we, we just don't even think about that.
0: Yeah, BP has other issues associated with oil prices, but that's different. But you can look beyond BP. You see several instances of this. Equifax, which we've talked about before in the past. More recently, Facebook. There were issues associated with Mark Zuckerberg going before Congress and talking about privacy and the use of Facebook for election interference. And the stock declined pretty significantly as people were concerned about that. But then they Over time, they just put up numbers and, oh, surprise, surprise, you know, it still is a great platform for advertising. And operationally, the business was still quite robust and the stock recovered. Now, one thing that's really interesting about all of these issues is that sometimes we'll have an issue. You'll see this often with like environmental obligations for a particular company. One that I think of is 3M or Kimmer's. Right now, I think it's called BPOA. It's basically the chemical that's used for Scotchgard, which is Home Forever chemicals because they have an infinite half-life or something insane like that. They just never, ever go away. All of us have some of these chemicals in our bodies. Well, it's very disconcerting, and maybe it's the next asbestos. What happens often is people get really upset and concerned about these, and it depresses the stock. But then ultimately, the issue... Basically, they become, it becomes less salient, regardless of the actual effect on the business. And then once it's less salient, then the stock may rise. Now, that doesn't mean that this issue isn't something that is ultimately going to be a huge expense for the business, but fear will dissipate over time.
1: Right. The next asbestos you just used, that sounds like a news headline that everyone would uh, be, it would pique their curiosity just to bring it back around to this whole Um, white engages people. um, When you label it as, you know, akin to some well-known tragedy, and this was the Equifax example as well, being compared to Enron, it just naturally evokes this sort of fear response, but it will usually dissipate. And I think it happens, the dissipation is surprisingly
0: fast after the news kind of quiets down and moves on to something else. Usually what I look for is some extreme event. One that we see right now, and this is this could be one that could be, we'll, we'll see, well, we can follow up with it. It could be the death knell for Juul, for instance, which the issues associated with people that have gotten sick and died associated with vaping. And the CDC initially came out and said that everybody should stop vaping altogether. People have been vaping for a very long period of time. You know, it has been around since the 90s, actually. But... This rash of sicknesses, supposedly, most of the cases are associated with the use of THC and illegal or basically kind of un- they're, unregulated they're street chemicals, unregulated yeah, yeah. chemicals for pods that people are making themselves that contain vitamin E or uh, usually coconut oil, which coats the lungs and makes people sick. But the interesting thing is, is there's already this very negative predisposition because of the youth use of vaping. That already existed in society, so a lot of policymakers have levered these most recent illnesses that people have had as justification for all outright bans and I think that 's happened in Michigan, New York, and uh, Washington State, most recently in a number of cities in California, including San Francisco. This certainly pervades all areas of life,
1: including regulations um. So to wrap this one up, we've covered a lot of ground here with, it really comes down to the distinctiveness of how something is described and the novelty, and it allows something to rise above the noise and become kind of a signal we attend to, but it only is short-lived. So we've talked about this in response to human influence. So both in uh, the panhandling example, as well as uh, making requests for things like time, if you Make a distinctive request with some reasonable justification, you'll play upon someone's compassion, and they will likely comply with your request. If, however, you ask in a very uh, thoughtless fashion, you will probably get discounted because people it'll look like every other request people are getting. So the advice there is is—is have a, a decent justification, especially when you're asking for a favor. We talked about the base rate neglect issue. Try to think in terms of probabilities whenever possible because there are so many statistics out there. Many things are quantified. They just don't uh, rise to the foreground often enough. And be wary of something that sounds too dramatic because it may be only pitched that way to pique your curiosity. A better calibration would be to look at
0: base rates. Remember, there's a bigger issue and try to do more research on it. That's definitely the case. And, we, and we'll see opportunities for different distortions like this as we get closer and closer to the election. People will look at various industries and they'll assume that the election, you know, perhaps a democratic president or something along those lines will result in real problems associated with a particular industry. Some of that will definitely be the case, and then some of it will be overblown, and you'll see you know, some pretty big distortions that could create some opportunities for investment in the future.
1: Sounds great. We'll look forward to it. So we thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in these topics, be sure to visit the show notes at mentalmodelspodcast.com where you can find more links to the basic brain physiology as well as some of the topics we've talked about today. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit MentalModelsPodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to
0: Improving Financial Decision
1: Making. Also available on MentalModelsPodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.